As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is an Unspoiled Network podcast. This is Spoil Me, covering your name. The 2016 Japanese animated romantic fantasy film produced by Comix Wave Films and released by Toho. This movie was commissioned by Candace, and Candace, I really owe you one. I really do. Welcome to spoil me. Welcome to the show, everyone. I am Natasha. So I'm going to start this episode off with sort of a reiteration of something that I said on my Facebook the other day. And when I said it on Facebook, it was a few days earlier, it was in response to the Fleabag finale, which if anybody who is watching this or listening to this has not watched Fleabag, please fix that. Because it's probably in the top three television shows I've ever seen in my life. Like, it's perfect. And I said in my Facebook post that there are times during this job, which is really a wet dream kind of job, let's be honest. I'm able to read and watch TV and then I talk about it and I get paid and people would just kill for what I do. So I'm grateful every day that this is my job and that it has worked out. That said, there can be times where it's tough to get through the material whatever it is that I'm covering, I maybe am just not connecting to it or it was great. And now it's starting to go downhill, which is particularly disappointing. And it can just be tough, you know, especially when it's being commissioned because somebody really likes it and I don't want to shit all over something they love. And then there are times like this where I'm so grateful that I started Spoil Me at all because I am going to be forced 
to watch something I may have never ever have find, like gotten around to and maybe never heard of even, you know, and you come out of the other end of some things genuinely like different. And you see everything after in this lens of like, well, in comparison to this other thing, that's just completely life changing. And I swear to God, this movie was so unexpected and so great. And it made me feel so many things. And Candace, I'm just really like mad at you right now because I wasn't ready for it. And you could have warned me, but like you just didn't warn me at all. And I just, wow, that was really aggressive of you. So that's all I'm going to say about that. (laughs) She said I had to suffer. Now you. Um, She says he has others too. So please don't watch them. Oh, She's so, are you going to commission those? Is that why? I thought you were going to say, please go watch them. Um, Kyle says, 2021 slash 22 is the year Natasha becomes an anime fan. Kyle, you may be right about that. You may be right about that. I mean, I'm starting Full Metal Alchemist next year. So, well, Brotherhood. Um, So maybe we'll see how that one goes. But... Yeah, so this film, first of all, we have to talk about the animation because, holy shit, this is one of the most beautiful movies I have ever seen. It's just, I have this, like, I I feel like I'm going to be pausing. I have it playing in the background right now. I feel like I'm going to be pausing during this recording to screenshot different portions because it's so beautiful, I would just make it like my desktop background or my like phone background. You know, it's just so pretty. This is one of those things that I feel I, I completely understand the need for it, of course. But it's the one thing about anime that can be disappointing in some ways for me because the backgrounds and and landscapes are so gorgeous. And then you have pretty basic people, you know, walking around in front of it. And I, like I said, I understand the need for that. The people are what moves and you're going to have to draw that a million times. And of course there is a necessity of making that simpler and easy to replicate and whatever. Um, but, oh my God, these are the, the shot in the beginning with the, the comet splitting and streaking through the sky. And you are looking down at this lake, which clearly you can see. It's like in the middle of a crater and there's a whole thing. This, for a second, I thought was live action because of how detailed it is. And there are a few moments like this where I, for a moment, I'm just like, is this, is this animation? Or are they doing that thing where sometimes they'll cut in live action and they'll just sort of put a filter over it, so to speak, and be like, yeah, it's close enough. There's a moment when we see later on the threads being woven. And we see a variety of different, like, braids that are lined up next to each other in different colors. And I was just, it was just so beautiful. Um, And we start off this, this story is sort of a mystery, in a way. Because it starts off with these two people, and they are both sharing the same experience that they have been having, where they wake up crying, 
and they don't understand why. And she says, the one thing that lasts when I wake up is a sense of loss, which lingers for a long time afterward. And we see these two different people and they both are apparently living and working or attempting to work as we find out from Taki in Tokyo. And this is just, you know, one of those things that looking back, I realized that I should have known she wasn't going to die, but because you see her here and it's in the future, she's not living where she had. So there was a moment where it's very definitive how this goes, but I wasn't remembering that. So I genuinely had some tension with this where I kind of thought, is this going to be a tragedy? Like, are we going to, is it going to be that she dies and he can't change it? And it's just this like star cross lover. Is it going to be that she doesn't die, but they wind up not actually meeting each other. And it's just a sort of two ships passing in the night situation. Um, Cause that's, I, I totally understand not wanting to go that direction, especially if you're doing something that you're trying to make widely beloved. You want usually to give people a happy ending. That tends to be what we want to do. But there are times where unrequited is the way to go. And I really wasn't sure as I watched what I would rather have happen. And there was um, a film... Oh my God, I can't remember his name. This really famous Asian director. And he did In the Mood for Love. And there goes a, a romance that just ripped my heart out and it is unrequited. And it's still one of the most romantic, beautiful movies I've ever seen. And it doesn't, they don't really like, it doesn't work out, but it's fantastic anyway. So I trusted in whatever he was going to decide to do. But nevertheless, I should have known. I should have realized. I just wasn't really like thinking back all the way to the beginning while I was watching. I was too invested in trying to figure out what the hell was going on now. Um, so they are talking about this feeling that they are searching for someone, that they feel this longing and like there is a memory that's like just out of reach. And then they talk about how this all seemed to start on the day the star fell. And we see two different views of both of them. And she is dressed in this like traditional kimono and she's out on, <laughs> on what, if this were, a European centric story, I would say out on the moors. Um, but she's like on this like cliffside and gazing up at the sky and you see this comet. And I really did have a moment where I was kind of like, is that shit about to hit? But then I thought, no, it's really far away. It's fine. And, but it turns out that instinct that, that fear was correct more than I knew. Um, I think I thought was, is that about to hit because it's red and that tends to happen when something is actually like crossing into our atmosphere. Um, but yeah, so they are both like, ha they both have this vague feeling and they both remember the star as being connected to it. But there isn't 
anything that they can really put their finger on. And that's part of the whole thing is constantly gut feeling being like, I'm trying to figure out how to word this. Going with your instincts and trusting that there is a reason you're feeling how you're feeling. And that's sort of what almost undoes them at the end because they obviously have a connection when they pass on the train and spot one another. It's very clear they are both experiencing something, but because there's not a, a sane way to put a name to it, you can't, if another person isn't experiencing the exact same feeling that you are, to say, I feel like I know you, is going to sound either one, like maybe you're just obsessive and a little bit not okay. Two, maybe you're just like using a line on somebody because that's definitely like don't I know you from somewhere is like you know a standard pickup attempt to start a conversation and I just really uh, you guys I, I've talked about this on multiple shows so probably everyone listening to this knows this already but I have had this feeling with two men in my life that I I one wound up marrying and two I'm about to marry and so while I understand people saying that love at first sight is not real because they're talking about it being just about appearances. And I understand people thinking that because if you haven't experienced that connection and I hesitate to call it love at first sight because it isn't love, it's something else. It's like you recognize them. It, that's really is the best way to put it. Like you recognize them from somewhere. And you just both will have it happen. And that definitely happened with me and Brendan. And I was already engaged to somebody else. And I, I like met him when I was working at Whole Foods. And the first time I met him, I walked away and a voice in my head said, you're going to marry him. And I freaked out because I was engaged and planning a wedding to somebody else. And I just tried to avoid him um, over the coming weeks because it was just too, I, I, it was too much, you know? And then gradually I started to give into it and spent more time around him and began to realize that there was like a very strong draw between both of us. It was not one-sided and it took a little while, but I wound up leaving the person that I was with and I got together with him and then we wound up married a couple of years later. And again, similar thing with Owen. And this is part of why when people talk about be like your forever person, I don't necessarily think that happens for everyone, but I think that it can, you can have multiple people in your life who are meant to be in your life that are important. I think I was meant to be with Brendan for a time. And I think that he was deeply important f to my development as a person, probably me to his as well. Unspoiled might not exist if I hadn't met him. And yet our relationship event eventually ran its course. And I had a couple of moments where I would try and picture us growing old together and I couldn't do it. It was an odd thing. I had a similar thing with Ruben, who I had been engaged to when I met Brendan, that I would try and picture us walking down the aisle 
And I couldn't picture it. And it was just a, a weird thing where it was just like, my brain just didn't want to do it. And we didn't wind up married. I didn't wind up staying with Brendan. And with Owen, I am, I can picture us all together, no problem. I am certain. I'm just, this is who I'm with now. And that's going to be it for me. Like, this is just it. I just know. But when somebody hasn't gone through that, it's just, it's impossible to get across to them what it feels like in that moment. I didn't even have to meet Owen in person for this to happen. I encountered him on Twitter and looked at his photo and had a moment of like, don't I know him? I've, I'm sure I know him. And looked through all his photos and even like pictures of him in his house where I was like, I feel like I've been there before. And that's exactly what it was like when I finally did come down to Texas. And I walked into his front door and I stood there in his living room for a second and I thought, oh, here I am. And it was just this moment of like, finally, it just came together. It was truly, it's like an out of body experience. And you immediately judge yourself after it happens because you think you're being sentimental. You know, there's just this feeling of like, it can't be that easy. You don't know. But I think you do sometimes. I really do. And if it's past life stuff, or if it's just like fate's hand, or if it's just some sort of instinct and sixth sense that we have, maybe not everyone has it. I don't know. But it's real, man. And so that's part of why this whole storyline and their like desperation at trying to grasp onto and cling to something that just evaporates in their hand is so heart wrenching to watch because when they try and explain, first of all, it sounds bonkers because the body switching thing is bonkers. And second of all, if you, if for example, either of them was with a friend when they spotted one another on the trains, I don't think their friends would have like let them talk to one another. They wouldn't have. And what are you going to say? How do you explain? I just know. I think I know him, I guess, you know? Um, so anyway, it's just, one of those, like, it's like a supernatural sort of explanation for something that is actually real, if that makes sense. Um, and maybe it is a supernatural thing. Like I said, who fucking knows? But uh, uh, Candace says, it's a feeling that won't leave you alone. They're in the database, but you don't know where. That's a pretty good way to say it, actually. It's almost like... You, you have an appendix in front of you and you see a name and there's no context. But once you run across the name in the story, you're like, I think I remember that. Um, and she, she says, I think this is why Shinkai's movies. I hope that's, I'm saying that right. Shinkai's movies and the stories he adapts are so affecting. He's describing something that's really impossible to describe unless you know. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, Florian says, Natasha, that gives me hope for my love life. Listen, just trust it when it happens. Like, again, I will reiterate, you will judge yourself the instant you feel or think whatever it is. You will step back and go, okay, that's based on nothing. I sound like a lunatic. I'm not going to say that to them. I'm not going to think it again. But trust it. You don't have to do anything bonkers. But just believe that that is something. 
And that's all I'm saying. I feel like that has served me well in my life. Um, so anyway, like I said, we have this, this moment with them where we're introduced to them three years after this all actually happened. And then we go back and find out how it went down. And her hair tie is this important sort of symbol here because we see her with her hair tied. The ribbon comes out. Is it a ribbon or is this one of the like woven threads thing? I feel like it's one of those, right? But it comes out of her hair and then we see her hair shortened, which winds up happening later. And the thread of her like hair ribbon twists around the two of them. And it's clear that there's a feeling of connection and it's just a symbol that we don't understand yet because we don't have all of the context for it. Um, so yeah, this is the, the start of this whole thing. And eventually we go to the waking up and it's really confusing at first because you have no idea why this is f why she is freaking out. Um, Candace is saying it's one of the braids, which in my opinion is a thing <laughs> is Jean, one of the braids is a thing. Um, and guys, I know that we hear him say her name a million times, but Taki is just a lot easier to remember. Mitsuha. Mitsuha? I think it's Mitsuha. Is that right? Um, and yeah, she is laying in bed. We hear Taki's name being called and somebody saying, don't you remember? And then her taking the, her hair tie out of her hair and handing it to him. And then she sits up straight in bed and there's a tear running down her face and she looks around and you're like, what, why is she acting like she's not, doesn't know where she is? And he looks down at his boobs. It's her boobs, but at the moment it's his boobs and feels them. Because as it turns out, we find out later, he thinks that he's in a very realistic dream. So as far as he knows at this moment, he's not in somebody else's body. He's just do just experimenting on his dream boobs. However, later on, when it becomes clear what's happening, he still squeezes her boobs and she does get on him for that, which I did appreciate being addressed because she specifically is like, hey, no, don't. And I think it's important to have those ground rules. I appreciate that. I will say I don't know if I could resist if I were in somebody else's body touching and feeling around and figuring out what was going on. I would just be fascinated. It would be really, really hard to respect that. Like I understand the need for it and I really think it's important, but come on, that'd be so difficult, especially the whole way that you wake up is like a dude is going to have morning wood more often than not. So you just have to like go with that and like get up and go about your day with that thing in the way. Like 
that sounds like a nightmare. I really wonder how dudes handle morning wood in general, (laughs) pun intended. But like, I know that you don't all immediately wake up and jerk off. Like, I'm sure that's a way to deal with it some days, but you're not always going to have time for that. So you just have to wait for it to go down. And that feels really tedious and annoying to me. I just feel like I would be so irritated by it every morning to just be like, oh, this again, you know? Um, so anyway, yeah, he in her body is messing around with her boobs and her sister comes to the door and it's like, what the fuck are you doing? And what's sort of like weird about this is that we see her behaving oddly at the breakfast table. We see this, um, comet being talked about in the on the TV in the living room but it sort of uh jumps to her putting her hair up and getting ready and then everybody telling her you were acting really weird yesterday so i was a little bit confused because When people say you were acting weird yesterday, I guess it's meant to be that now Mitsuha is back in her body, but I didn't see the transition on either this is a new day or we, because they, they talk about how you acted really weird yesterday. You didn't do your hair. You didn't know what classes you had, you didn't know what your own name was. You were acting just really strange. But we cut to her putting her hair up from this breakfast that I had assumed was the same morning as when Taki takes her body over. So if Taki took her body over and didn't do her hair or anything then we didn't see the same, we didn't see that day at all. We just find out about it later. And I just found it really confusing because I just didn't think that was made clear. So that's the one like real criticism of the way that this is shown that I feel like they didn't do a good job making it obvious. This is a whole new day that we're starting on over here. Um, But So it took me a little while to catch on to the fact that we had already seen the body takeover, but that he was no longer in her body anymore. On the way to school with her friends, she passes her father, who is apparently the mayor running for re-election. And we get a little bit of a look once Taki, once everything has happened with the comet and Taki actually goes to her town, he sees that her mother I think died in childbirth and her father just didn't want anything to do with them if I'm not mistaken that's how it went but it is obvious from this scene first of all they're living with their grandmother he isn't at the house and there's no real mention made of him but he tells her to stand up straight as she's walking by that's like the one thing that he says to her and it's very clear they just have no relationship and whenever they encounter one another, it is not good. And it's very depressing to me, you know, this guy like 
especially the fact that he got elected mayor, but his children are still alive and he doesn't even live with them. I feel like that would reflect badly on him. And I'm surprised that he got elected because that for me would be evidence of like, wow, this guy doesn't seem like he actually takes his responsibilities very seriously. Um, Candace says he's really peak. My wife died and suddenly I can't function. And that's my personality. Yeah. I can't function except that I'm like the mayor of a small town, which you know, I mean, that does make sense, though. Some people can't handle themselves, but they can exert control on everything around them besides their own life. And that winds up working out for them somehow. I say working out for it with an asterisk because it doesn't really. But, you know, it's what they get. Um, so, yeah, the mayor is just sort of a non-entity for a lot of this, except when she has to go to him with her theory later. Uh, and it turns out that he is more prepared to like have her hospitalized than he is to have an actual conversation. He sucks. And again, we have this moment where the um, people are talking about how she didn't, how she was acting really weird yesterday. She's in class and this teacher calls her name and she sits up and it's just like, what? Yes. And the teacher's like, Oh wow. You actually know who you are today. I guess that's an improvement. This is one of those things where I'm like, if that if she hadn't actually been taken over by somebody else, this is just one of those, for me, like bad form moments of punishing the behavior that you want to see. Somebody's acting weird and you're like, oh, wow, you're not acting like a total fucking weirdo today. That's nice. Don't be a dick. Maybe they were having a bad day. Shut up. Just like mind your business. Okay, it's fine. Um, so... She's talking about Twilight and the significance of Twilight. And uh, an older term is dusklight, also golden hour. Um, And one of the boys says magic hour is something my grandma says. And she says, well, they're technically the same thing, but one is the uh, magic hour is the tomb that most photographers use. And... Yeah, that's like definitely something I'm, as y'all know, planning a wedding right now. And my photographer has brought up golden hour a couple of times. Um, She actually calls it that, not magic hour, but either way. Uh, And I had never heard that term until recently. But that is the best time of day for photos of any kind, especially food photos. As somebody who takes photos of all my food, I don't care if that's a stereotype my fo- my food is beautiful. It deserves it. Okay. I'm just saying you want to take those photos, you know, right around that time of day where the sun is like low and slanting and it just gives this chef's kiss sort of sheen to everything and makes it look supernaturally beautiful. Um, and as we find out later, that sort of trope about twilight being a magical time of day is very important because they are able to connect over this barrier of time at one point um, during twilight hours. And it's just really temporary and genuinely like so, so affecting when it happens. It's killed me. Um, I love when they say that she was acting really weird yesterday and we get the flashback where she's like smiling to herself with her hair wild and drinking a juice box and she just has this like expression. Oh God, I just found that really funny. Um, But yeah, 
She says, I have felt like I've been having weird dreams lately, like I'm dreaming about someone else's life. It's all so fuzzy. And this kid says, it's memories from a previous life, or maybe your subconscious linked to the Everett interpretation of the multiverse. And honestly, it's not any weirder than what it turns out is actually happening. So, sure. Let's go with that, you know? Um, and when he says this, she says, don't tell me you're the one who wrote in my notebook. And he's like, what? Because in her notebook was written, who are you? And this is the the main thing that doesn't work for this storyline. The storyline is so good that I am going to completely ignore it in like going forward. But y'all, we got to address it, Right. If you are taking over somebody's body and you don't remember the details about it once you're back in your own body, fine. But when you are in their body, you haven't forgotten the details about your own life, have you? So if you come across a, a notebook that says, who are you? And that person takes over your body and they see that. They could just write their name under the who are you. And then when you come back to your body, that's their name is right there. Because that you have, like I said, you haven't forgotten yourself when you're in their body, have you? It doesn't seem like that's ever suggested. They are fully aware they are not this person when they are switched. So... There is no good reason that they couldn't have communicated a whole lot earlier what they're, you know, and they leave notes for each other on their phone. You could definitely leave all kinds of information on there about who you are and where you're from and what your family's name is and friends and the street you live on, your full fucking address, you know, like all of that could actually be communicated for some reason, despite the fact that this goes on a long time, that never seems to enter their heads at all. And it would be literally the first thing I would do. Because I would just, of course, want to know, like, who is this person? How is this happening? If they're in my body, especially, I want to fucking figure out, okay, who's got the reins on me then uh, every now and then? It's unclear how often it happens. I am assuming it's not just every other day. Um, but it's frequent enough that it begins to change the course of their lives in pretty dramatic ways in a short space of time. Um, Florian says, I feel like when they switch back, they forget a lot like a dream, but that's my point, Florian. This isn't something that they would have to remember. This is for when they switch back. When she's in Taki's body, and she writes a message to him on his phone. She could write, by the way, my name is so-and-so and I live at blank, blank, blank. See you again soon, I guess. And then she switches back to her body and he comes back to his and reads the note that she left and knows exactly who she is and where to find her. But they just, it's sort of like treated like that is an impossibility and it shouldn't be. There's no real reason why that isn't possible or that it should, d hasn't occurred to them already to do that. It's simply taken for granted that for the story to work, 
they cannot have thought of doing that or for some reason it couldn't work. I would have liked it if there were more of an explanation as to why it couldn't work. So it didn't feel like such a huge plot hole, but you know, what can you do? Um, so like I said, and the, the story is so beautiful that because it works out and is so emotionally like resonant, I am willing to ignore it. I just, I can't talk about the movie and not mention that that's a completely obvious thing. And I have to think because the, um, I think the director or the, the, let's see. Uh, yeah, the writ the writer and director Shinkai, I think he says at one point in, because I read, um, part of a Wikipedia entry about this movie. He said that, yeah, here it is. Um, Shinkai insisted the film is not as good as it could have been. There are things we could not do. Masashi Ando, the director of animation, wanted to keep working on it, but had to stop us for lack of money. For me, it's incomplete and unbalanced. The plot is fine, but the film not at all perfect. Two years was not enough. And I just would love to pick his brain and find out exactly what it is that he isn't happy with if that because he says the plot is fine so for me i reading this in a vacuum would have thought this would be what he meant but that's part of the plot and he that seems to be not the thing that he's bothered by so i'm i'm very curious what it is that he is bothered by um so anyway um like I said, I just, I have to, I had to address it, but we're going to move forward and just ignore that and act as if it was addressed. So then we go back to her home with her grandmother. And again, just the scenery here is so beautiful as we're looking up this hillside. It's really funny because it's so clear the differences in priorities between when you're young and when you're older. These kids are living in this obscenely picturesque hillside community near a lake that is like, I mean, it's just so it could be a postcard, but they are feeling very trapped and unsatisfied because in terms of social life, this place has got nothing. They said at one point there isn't even a dentist here. So they have to leave town to be able to do anything. And when you're that age, you can't leave town unless somebody takes you and people don't want to take you. And I think a lot of us probably could think back to being in high school before we got our license or our friends got them and having to ask our parents to give us rides places. And what a fucking like pulling teeth it was to get your parents to take you somewhere because they just, it's a drag to just drive one way to drop your kid off, come all the way home, wait like what a couple hours and then go all the way out and pick them back up again and then come home. Like, you know, I understand, but when you're that age, you just want to do things for God's sake. And it's so tedious to have to like, this is especially true of living in suburbs or rural places like this. So having grown up in the suburbs, that is something that I was always sort of jealous of when I would watch TV shows where people lived in cities. And even when they were very young, they could still go places together because they just needed to be on foot or they just needed public transportation. And I had to rely on my parents. And if if they weren't home, like then, then that was just an option completely off the table. So that is one of the uh, 
the big sort of themes here in the beginning of this is that she just wants to get out so bad and is feeling very stifled. Um, her friends are too, but she is more so. And I love at one point, um, I am guys, forgive me. I'm not going to be good with names here. I'm not good with names anyway, but whenever names are unfamiliar to me, it's so much worse. But the, uh, couple that she's always hanging out with that wind up getting we don't see them get married but we see them planning their wedding later which is actually pretty adorable um he is suggests that they all go to a cafe together and the two girls get super excited and then we cut to them sitting on a bench next to a uh what do you call it Con uh convenience machine dispenser Oh, help me, guys. Vending machine. Thank you, Florian. And the guy is like, yeah, as if there's a fucking cafe in this town. Um, it turns out that she has gone home. But at that point, you don't realize that. Um, but yeah, I can't imagine being somewhere like this where all you can do. This is what leads to teen drinking, in my opinion, being somewhere that you can't go and actually do stuff. So you have to create fun situations where there isn't anything material to hang on to. So you do stupid shit in order to entertain yourselves. You drink too much. You go out into the boonies and dare each other to do stupid shit, jump off stuff or drive too fast or take corners to like you're you're looking for some kind of stimulation and thrill and it usually takes the form of something pretty dangerous um if you are in a more rural area in the united states guns can frequently be involved in this you know um but yeah for me that wasn't really the draw i wound up it was sex you know, that was my thing is I would just, we'll find some place to go and have sex. And that was my recreation. But this is a much more uh, innocent storyline. So that's not what we're doing here. So we cut to the scene with her grandmother. And she is learning how to do this uh, weaving. And it's really beautiful. Again, you see these like spools of thread that are hanging. Her little sister is trying to do it on, she's doing like a small, like uh, spooling the thread off to the side and she isn't able to actually get on the loom. But the grandmother is talking about the significance of all of this. So she says, um, when you twine it round and round like this, she says, first, listen to the thread's voice. When you twine it round and round, feelings will start flowing between you and the thread. And the little sister, understandably, is just like, thread can't talk. What are you, what are you talking about? And honestly, as a kid, this would have meant nothing to me. But as an adult, I'm like, oh, wow, this is really beautiful, you know? And there is something when you are older and like the appreciation that you have for the time spent with people who are teaching you an art that is older or has a lineage in your family in particular, you just fail to grasp it as a kid because why would you, you have no, there's no context for that, you know, but as an adult, 
you can think back and realize that that was a hugely important moment that you're never going to forget. Things like that can be really what you hang on to after somebody is gone. They can be everything. So there was something really touching about this moment because I remember doing all kinds of like little crafts with my grandmother and she had a house with a huge garden. And one of the things that we would do together um, was make fairy soup, which was basically I would cut the wildflowers and fill a bowl with them and pour water over them and leave them out overnight for the fairies to eat. That was like this thing that she would go around with me and finding the flowers and making these arrangements. And then, of course, in the middle of the night, she would get up and go dump it out. But uh, I, as a child, would go and see that the bowl was empty and would completely flip out thinking the fairies found my offering. And, you know, it was very exciting. Um, So, yeah, these little things. She says, it's a thousand worth of Itomori's history. Uh, And then she talks about something that happened 200 years ago. The bathroom of sandal maker Mayugoro Yamazaki caught on fire and this whole area burned down. The shrine and old documents were destroyed. This is known as Mayugoro's Great Fire. And the little girl says they named the fire after him. I feel bad for Mayugoro. Girl, that's a good point. You know, having like this like accidental huge disaster named after you for the rest of time. That's embarrassing. (laughs) So she says the meaning behind our festivals was lost because of that. Only the surface was left, but even if those words are gone, the tradition shouldn't fade. That's the the Miyamizu Shrine's duty, our important task. And this is sort of, I am assuming, because at one point, she says that her son abandoned the Shinto priesthood and... That was bad enough, but that going into politics was, like, particularly bad. So this family, like, the place that they live is particularly significant in comparison to the rest of this neighborhood. And I am assuming that is why later on when she's talking to the grandmother and it's actually Taki in her body, the grandmother admits she had dreams that she was like taking somebody else's body and life too. So she went through this as well. And I have to think that that's because of their like spiritual link to things. Um, because nobody else in this town seems to have the same kind of connection. You know, we see them doing this like very formal ritual later on with making this offering that they give to this God And nobody else is doing anything like that. So they're, you know, this is something that is in their family specifically. And I found that really interesting. And I was curious whether or not this was based in anything true. Is this God, somebody real is, are these, I know that the ritual of making the sake and chewing up the rice and spitting it out, which by the way, gross, I know that's like a thing, but anytime that there's, spit it out and ferment it. And this is not 
specific to just Japanese culture. There are a lot of cultures that have things like that. I really cannot handle it. That is just, somebody had to think of that first. And can you guys imagine just like spitting stuff out into a pot and letting it sit like what you forgot about it, I guess. And then you go back and drink it. I would, I I can't, I I really want to know who fucking came up with that shit first. That's how I feel about a lot of things though. Anything fermented is on the surface horrifying. I mean, cheese. Cheese, who came up with it? All I have, I can assume, because you need like the lining of a stomach, you don't anymore, but you needed it for a long time in order to make cheese. Somebody was trying to carry milk around in some stomach and it curdled and they were just like, oh, well, I guess I'll eat it anyway. And I mean, like, God bless them, because we wouldn't have the fabulous assortment of goodies that we have today. Cheese is life, kids. But somebody had to do it first. And that is a bullet that they were ready to take. And I admire that. And I'm also horrified by it. Oh, fermentation, man. What a what a crapshoot. <laughs> um, so let's see. Candace says they're usually real gods, but creative liberties. Okay, okay. Um, so anyway, yeah, this this whole ritual, like I said, is not something that the rest of the town takes part in. And th- her and her little sister, when they do it, there's a bunch of like kids from her school watching and sort of mocking her. Not openly, but they're just sort of saying to themselves, like, oh, my God, if I had to do this, I would be so embarrassed. And I will say, at the very least, thank God that, like, Taki didn't take her body over for this, because this feels like something that if she forgot the steps, it would be hugely embarrassing and maybe even, like, shameful. (laughs) So I am relieved, at least, that these moments that were very important, he is not around to, like, interfere with, because that could have gone really wrong, and who knows if they had been able to connect later, because the way that they complete this ritual winds up being the way they, that she and Taki are able to actually speak to one another later. Um, So... And she does this uh, sort of like ribbon dance. And I'm wondering if the ribbons are the woven strands as well. I'm looking at it and realizing like maybe that's what this is. Um, But it's really beautiful. You know, it's just one of those things that uh, I wish that I understood everything behind it a little bit more. It's uh, I'm sure that like each movement has some sort of significance. Um, But yeah, so... We go from this scene and this depiction of this ritual to Taki waking up. And it's, oh my God, guys. Mitsohu? Mitsohu? I can't believe I forgot her name already. I am very bad. Um, But she is in his body. And we get to see what it was like for her in his body, which I am assuming means that we've traveled back in time a little bit because they had to have switched before. And so the, the, unless this isn't the first time 
It isn't the first time because his friends say something about how he's been acting weird lately. So it's the first time that we see her switch, but it's not the first time that she switched ever. Um, but yeah, so she's looking in the mirror, freaking out. I love that she feels between her legs that then she says, there's something there. That's what, that's all she says. And then reaches down and like freaks out, which that sounds appropriate. That feels like exactly how I would also react. And the main thing about her taking over Taki's body and talking lives with his father we don't actually see his mother i don't know if we ever even find out what happened to his mother but taki is apparently kind of aggressive and uh later on this girl that he works with who he sort of starts to get involved with but it doesn't work out for obvious reasons um she says something about how she doesn't think she doesn't see him as particularly strong but that he's always ready to start a fight which same, uh, but he, when she is in his body is much more friendly, likable, thoughtful, just overall, she brings a very necessary balance to his overall energy. And that seems to be what he does for her as well, because we get this montage of each of them and he is more aggressive and outgoing and it begins to get the attention of a lot of the boys who start sending her notes and being like, do you like me? Circle? Yes. Circle now. Um, and I love that there's a point at which the kids in her class are like talking shit about her and Taki in her body kicks the desk over and just crosses his arms and stares at them. And it's sort of funny because in real life, I actually think that would work. It doesn't make sense though, that it would work because he kicked his own desk over, right? He didn't kick their desk over. And that like, really, if you kick your own desk over, that doesn't feel like you're, you're not making a point to them. However, like I said, I still think it would work because it's just such a wild thing to do in the middle of a class that everybody, they would have to like sit up and pay attention. And in some ways, doing something that doesn't make that much sense is somehow more unsettling. So, you know, you kick your own desk over and they're like, oh, shit, kicked his own desk over. Like, that's even worse. I don't even understand why they do that. So, yeah, okay, I guess we'll shut the fuck up now because you seem very unpredictable. (laughs) Um, Florian says, can we talk about his co-worker boss? I love her. I'm a gay male and I would take her to the bedroom. (laughs) She is apparently, everybody is very into her. And so when she is in Taki's body and is friendly, she repairs a slit in this girl's skirt here, here was something wild. What was up with that? Because Taki's job outside of school turns out to be being a waiter. And there's somebody who's trying to like pull a scam and says like, oh, there's a toothpick stuck in the side of this pizza, which like is just nonsense. It's a good thing I caught it. Who knows what would have happened if I ate it? And Taki's starting to be like, we don't even have 
toothpicks here and the person's like about to get all fucking huffy the way people do when they're being called out on their shit when this girl steps in and is like oh i'm really sorry we'll comp your meal and she handles it the way as she puts it they say to in the handbook even though it's super clear that he is trying to scam them successfully scamming them let's be honest if they know but they give you free food anyway it you still succeeded it's fine but he has this like it looks almost like a box cutter in the illustration that he slides out and cuts the back of her skirt with while she's talking to him and trying to like make it right that, you know, there was this toothpick in his food. And I did not understand this like impulse or because I feel like this seems something cultural where there's a type of harassment that actually happens that is like this, that maybe doesn't occur in the United States the same way. And so it just feels incredibly arbitrary and random on our end when maybe cultural context would make it clearer why he's doing it in the first place, you know? Um, But because, yeah, and we see very clearly this guy like, slide this out of his pocket we know that it was him who does it and we see the slit in her skirt later but we don't actually see him do it it's all just very odd and i just want okay so kyle says japan has a big problem with random public groping of women so kyle i know that that is like that is a an actual porn subgenre everybody if you're not familiar i have run into this um is groping of women on public transportation and it's almost without fail asian people in these videos gee is that what you are saying that this is meant to be sort of a stand-in for groping like they weren't going to do something that egregious and overtly sexual but they wanted to get across that same kind of like violation basically um, cause like I was, I guess the, the slit that appears in her skirt, it's like fairly high up, but it's not so high up that it seems as if it was meant to be like exposing either, you know? Um, so yeah, just the whole thing. It was a, a really odd situation, but what it is that Taki does, uh, is... Oh, I guess it is fairly high up. It's like across her butt. Um, So yeah, I guess it's fairly high up. Uh, Candace says, I think it was meant to be sexually demeaning. I think he can't have sexual violence in the movie. Okay. Because there, yeah, it just felt like it was, it was, it felt like that kind of thing that somebody would do to vent sexual frustration, but it didn't feel like, it made total sense to me, but I guess I see what you guys are talking about. Um, just like if you can't actually have a dude grope a woman, then how do you show that they are doing something that's incredibly sketchy that that woman wouldn't notice until later? Cause that's also part of it. And it's also, it has to be something that Taki can fix, but that, Oh my God, guys, I'm sorry. What is her name? It's funny that this is called your name. And I, 
actually don't remember. Um, Mitsuha, Mitsuha, Mitsuha. Oh God. I thank God for Amazon. Um, Oh, but Candace told me, uh, sorry, Candace, I didn't see yours. I just went to Amazon x-ray. Um, but it has to be something that Mitsuha in Taki's body can fix for her as well to sort of get her attention. So yeah, I mean, it works. It gets the job done. It's just such an odd thing. And I really wondered if there were, cause there can be sort of rashes of a type of harassment that happens in certain cities. And it's just like, it's not actually accomplishing anything necessarily. Like it's not a type of theft. It's just a sort of, it can be just to prank. And that doesn't feel like the right word, but you guys get what I mean. Um, and I feel like this kind of thing happened in Philly for a time. And I feel like it also had to do with knives, but it wasn't like it was, they were cutting people it was like they were cutting like the straps on purses or something. And just like, they weren't trying to take the purses, but yeah. Anyway. Um, so Taki stitches this up and makes this like little, uh, embroidered scene of a little, what do you call it? Like a flower vine. And whatnot. And she's like impressed and says, Oh, I like you better today. My skirt actually looks cuter now. Um, and who would have known that you had a feminine side? And this leads her to notice Taki in a way that she hasn't. And everybody that Taki works with takes that very personally because they are all into her. And apparently the bro code says that none of them are allowed to actually try and approach her, even though all of them desperately want to approach her. And this is very interesting for me because the bro code. So what is it? Do you, do you guys all sit down and have like a round table discussion about who gets to try to approach her? Like, I just find this really funny because the assertion is that none of you is allowed to make the first move and overshadow the others. But if she approaches one of you, I guess you're also supposed to pretend that's not happening and say no to her, even though she has actually attempted to connect with you and you are, we are taking for granted here, also interested. But you're meant to just sort of either ignore her or table it for discussion with the bros at a later date. And you should not take the reins and move forward until you have had your little quorum. Is that how bro code is meant to work? Um, let's see. Candace says this director has a bit of a thing for older women. Usually his romance pairs are a small age gap. And usually the girl is older. He double dipped in this movie. Um, so, yeah, this, uh, like I said, his friends at work do not take super kindly to this. And the whole thing with Mitsuha is that she is trying to do him a favor because it seems pretty clear to her that he probably is interested in this girl. There's no real, like, I feel like there's no real suggestion that he is other than she finds a photo of her on his phone when she's going through his phone. And so she's like, okay, he's taking like kind of 
creepy secret photos of her. He must be into her. So let me do him a favor and I'm going to get things rolling so that they make a connection. And it starts working and they do wind up having a date. But by the time the date happens, it's obvious that the two of them have become sort of weirdly interested in one another. And they both don't really know how to cope with this at this point. And the girl, um, Sayaka, is that her? I'm looking at the Amazon, uh, the x-ray thing again. Um, the girl is like able to tell that Taki is no longer interested in her. She was like, I could, I, I feel like you were at one point, but it seems pretty clear now that you are distracted by feeling something for somebody else. And he tries to deny it, but you know, she has her, her sixth sense about it. And the whole thing is just uh, really sad because at this point, we don't know that there is a three-year gap between each of their experiences. So you feel like, well, guys, just figure out who the other is and go meet each other. And it turns out that is exactly what Mitsuha tries to do. And she sets up this date for him. And it's supposed to be that he meets the girl he works with at the train station. And she goes there herself because she's hoping that even if they haven't like actually met, that he's going to know who she is and sense it as soon as he sees her. And that'll be it. And she goes, but doesn't realize that this for him does not happen for another three years. So she recognizes him immediately. It's, it's not even like she sees him and knows it's like she feels him on the train as it passes and gets on to the train purely on instinct. Like this is the one I meant to get onto, which again, guys, this shit happens and you don't like, you have this just, and when it happens, there's no mistaking it. You will know if this has ever happened to you because there have been points where you're like, I don't know why I just felt like this was the car to get onto. And it's like a very sort of casual, like, I don't know, a whim, you know, but when it's something that you are really being drawn and you don't get it, that is something you won't forget for the rest of your life. It will feel so strong that you're going to wonder what the hell is wrong with you because it doesn't make any sense and it won't make sense in the moment. That's the point of it. You know, you have to go on faith that the feeling means something. So she gets like on this train car just by this sort of, it's almost like she can smell him, you know, like she's sensing his presence. And when she sees him knows for sure, Oh, there he is but he does not know who she is. And it's really like embarrassing because she is so forward and familiar because she assumes that he gets it. And then he has no idea what the hell she's talking about. And yet, despite the fact that he doesn't recognize her yet, there is obviously something in him that can sense she is important to him in some way. Because as she's walking away, he just is overcome with this sort of, there's almost a panic. And he just says, wait, what's your name? And she yells her name out and 
tosses him her hair braid ribbon. And that is what we see him wearing today. He has kept it and worn it as a good luck charm this whole time. So three years later, when he finally does actually meet her, he's going to have it on his wrist. Now, guys, I must have missed it, but I have to, un- I have to assume that this hair tie thing that she, when she was in his body, she noticed that he was wearing her hair tie on his wrist, that it was like the same pattern and everything. Did she? Because if she did, I missed it or just didn't understand at the time what was happening there. Um, Candace says, I think the ribbon is the timeline flag in the story. Depending on who has it, you can see when it is. Maybe she says, yes, it's why she gave it to him. Okay. Yeah. So I definitely like missed that. She noticed that he had it. So she gave it to him because she knew he already had it. It's one of those like time loop things where, you know, you did it. So you need to do it in order for it to have been done in the time that you saw it already. Got it. Got it. Got it. Okay, cool. Um, so yeah, this is just, it kills me because this whole scene with her going to the train station and trying to meet him and him not being there. This doesn't happen until after we find out about her death. So Taki is looking at the reports that she has left on his phone And she says something about how he could probably see the comet today. And he's like, what the fuck? Comet? He doesn't know what she's talking about. And their body switching has stopped. And he's sort of like waiting for it to happen again. And it starts to become clear. It's just not going to. And finally, he's like, you know what? I got to figure out where the fuck she is. And so he starts making all of these drawings from memory of different places that he has seen Um, because again, he doesn't remember everything super well. So even if he did see a sign that literally said, this is the town, uh, he wouldn't remember that. He does have the landscape vaguely in mind though. So he goes on this mission with his friends to figure out where this place is. And eventually they find it because somebody spots his drawings when they're waiting on them at a restaurant. And they are like, that place isn't there anymore. And I was like, it's what now? (laughs) You guys, when I was watching this, I was just like, "Hmm? what? And then we see him go over to this like brink and look out at this completely demolished area. And (laughs) Candace says, man, listen, I remember saying out loud, Oh no, this bitch is dead. Yeah, this is just truly what a twist to throw this in here that she has died. And that is why they aren't body switching anymore. And not only has she died, but this happened three years ago. Because up until you find out when this happened, it could have been that she just died. And so the body switching stopped because she recently passed away but no it was it's like the same timing like they're on the same general track 
but they're just switched over on. So it's just really wild. Um, and yeah, when he figures out that this is what's going on, he starts to try and insist like, no, 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 I have messages from her. I know that she was real. And then he looks at his phone and he watches them begin to like literally disappear from his phone in front of his eyes. It's all very like back to the future esque, And, uh, he is, gets to a point eventually where he starts to be like, did I make this up? Is it, was it just like a huge dream? And I just somehow created this reality in my head that wasn't real. Even if, even though he sees it disappearing in front of his eyes, so that indicates that these reports were there. It's still, you could almost tell yourself, maybe I just made up that I saw them disappearing. Like when everything has been so tenuous already, it's very easy to just discount every other thing that you thought supported your theory about what actually happened here. So we have this, uh, this sort of, what's the word? I, I, I don't want to say montage. It's just talking like he's sort of having a crisis here and doesn't really know what to do. He doesn't know how to handle what what has apparently been happening that he can't talk about to anybody. That's the worst part is like he fell in love with a person who died before he ever got to meet them and he can't tell anyone about it or explain it because he's going to sound like a fucking nut job. So you guys have to know, like if you go through heartbreak, it's bad enough if you can share it with people what's going on. But if you can't even talk about it because nobody can either know or believe you, it's so much worse. It's so isolating. And eventually he is looking like uh, he is talking to the girl um, that he works with. And she mentions this like braiding on his wrist. Uh, I wear it sometimes as kind of a lucky charm. And she is looking through a book that has like the braiding technique in it. And it's really interesting because when he tries to remember who gave him this lucky charm, I hate saying that out loud. It's just, I can't not think of the cereal. I can't, but he's looking at it and he says, who was it? Who gave this to me? And I thought that was interesting that like, even something that actually happened to him in life, because it involved her feels like it's sort of faded in his mind and he can't quite grasp it. So this is when he begins to put together this theory And he says, the person who makes these ones told me something. The cords represent the flow of time. They twist and tangle, unravel and connect. And and that's what time is. And maybe if I could, and this is when he gets this pretty wild idea. So he decides to travel there and 
there had been this gorgeous scene earlier on. Um, it's like after we see each of them take each other's bodies for a while. And Mitsuha is with her grandmother and her sister doing this sort of pilgrimage to a temple that's like underground. And it is probably the most beautiful part of the movie because it's October. Everything is in color and they're walking through the woods. She winds up, um, or no, he's, he's in Mitsuha's body actually. Right. Cause that's when he gives her a, uh, piggyback ride, the grandmother. And it's just this huge pilgrimage to bring the sake that they made in that ritual and leave it as an offering to the God. So he knows where it is because he was in Mitsuha's body during that time. And he's like, you know, that might be what fucking does it. And he goes back there and he has to like walk into a portion of the lake to get there because the temple is, you know, because of the change in the, what's the word I want in the landscape, I guess, due to the comet hitting, it's all this is like different now. And there's water that's flooded into certain areas. Um, Oh, topography. Thank you, Florian. Yeah, that's the word. So he goes in and he finds the sake, the one that she had left and he drinks it. Um, and then we have this really fucking cool sequence and it's, it's like he has a vision from it. You know, it's, it's really dramatic. It all happens as he falls backward by accident and he sees the comet, like, it's like it's painted on the ceiling, but it's not, it's actually a vision, but it's appearing in front of him as if it's drawn on the ceiling or maybe somebody did draw it. And that's like what triggers the memory for him. Um, but I thought that this was so well done. It's just so beautiful. Everything about this is just so beautiful. So he is, it's like the comet turns into the threads, which are what time is. And eventually the thread turns into like bubbles, which then become cells, which become the baby that she's her mother's given birth to and there's just this like it it sort of reminds me and this is gonna be a weird comparison but it sort of reminds me of like Fantasia (laughs) do you guys remember Fantasia from Disney where there was just this like really impressionistic start to a sort of imagery that the music would evoke in your mind and it would grow more and more solidified and eventually distinctive images. And that's sort of how this felt to me in a lot of ways. Um, and the, the imagery goes back and forth a couple times where we go from the comet back to the planet earth. And then, you know, we have the threads again and then it's the comet again. And, uh, and this is when we see the mother talking to the baby and she says, your name is going to be Mitsuha. And we see the umbilical cord getting cut another like sort of thread imagery. And 
in all of this, we keep cutting back to Taki falling backwards. It's like all of this imagery we're watching happens in like a split second to him, you know? And we see uh, Mitsuha with her mother and her father, who is in the like temple garb. And they're walking and having this lovely life together. And then she gets pregnant again. And her uh, she is by her mother's bedside in the hospital and the father is just devastated and we cut to him carrying what's clearly a box of ashes as the little sister asks when is mommy coming home so i guess if the little sister was old enough she didn't die in childbirth she died of some other ailment later on in her life and the daughter the like baby sister was around like four or five by the time this happened. Um, and uh, this moment is just, <laughs> she asks, when is mommy coming home? We see him just like curled up saying, I couldn't help her. And his mother saying, get a hold of yourself. He says, who cares about the shrine? And she says, but you're in charge now. And he says, I loved Futaba, not Miyamizu Shrine. And she just yells at him to get out and then tells the daughters, listen to me, girls, starting today, you'll be living with grandma. So he just like completely ignored them and abandoned them. Damn. What a cold hearted little bastard. And... Then we see scenes that we have seen already about the switching of the bodies and how this all happened. And he gets to see the moment in which she realizes that she doesn't want him to go on this date. Mitsuha is like thinking to herself about the date and that he's about to go. But when she's tying up her hair, thinking about it, she looks in the mirror and realizes that she's crying and has not put together the reason why she doesn't, she hasn't, really admitted that she has feelings for him yet. But this is him getting to see that, you know, the feelings that he has been developing are not one sided. And uh, he also sees her saying to her sister that she's going to go to Tokyo. And again, because we don't know as an audience yet, that the like, that she has gone and that there we didn't realize until recently that there was a three year gap. We haven't seen her go to Tokyo. We didn't really know that this was a thing yet or how that happened. Um, and then we see her cutting off her hair. And that was actually Mitsuha cutting her hair off, right? That wasn't Taki and her body cutting it off. I have to assume because I swear to God, if he cut her hair off, I mean, I would just flip out. Can you imagine? Somebody takes over your body and you come back into it and they've just like done all kinds of shit. Oh my God. Gotten a tattoo. <sighs> I would kill him. Um, oh, Candace says the red string of fate is a huge anime trope. Very popular. Okay. Dead anime mom. That's her mom. He married in. Oh, okay. So I thought that was his mother. Okay. So he married into the temple and that's why he says I never cared about the temple. I cared about her. Okay. Gotcha. 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 Um, and Taki is yelling 
uh, you've got to get out before the comet strikes. And he sees the moment in which she is standing watching the comet and the explosion happens. It, It connects and this cloud forms. And then all of a sudden he wakes up in her body and apparently has like traveled back in time and there is still time to fix everything. But that's the trouble is like, there is time, but how do you convince anybody that this is a genuine threat? How do you make it, make anybody believe you? So what she manages to do after unsuccessfully trying to convince her father, she and her friends who thankfully are willing to put their faith in her over this. I really appreciated them. They blow up the like power generating center of their town. And then they share a like fake uh, citywide, like warning town wide, I guess over these loudspeakers, which I'm very curious if those are really a thing. Um, it does seem efficient, but also very invasive. I don't know. But enough people listen to this, like, this urge. They, they, they claim that it's wildfires, and they say that maybe it's terrorists. Like, there's a bunch of, of stories, and it doesn't really matter what it is that people believe is happening, so long as they evacuate the area where the festival is happening, because that was where the majority of people were going to be located. And that was where the impact hits, you know. So um, Candace says, I think he thought his love for his wife would trump her family magic, and he resents that it wasn't enough, and it's why he left the shrine and why he pushes back so hard. And the family lost all their records, so they didn't know what was happening. Yeah, that's interesting. I like to think that maybe the family records would have some documentation of this, like, dream body swapping going on, because that would be kind of cool, you know? I, I have to assume that this is something that's, like, a generational thing, and that if Mitsuya has kids, their kids are also going to wind up having this uh, happen to them, perhaps, depending. Um, but yeah, and also, again, like, Grandma knows when Taki is in her body. He, she's like, yeah, you're not, you're not her, are you? Like, what, what is this? So, but we don't really get confirmation that this worked. It kind of looks at first like it didn't. Enough people seem to have like listened, but then they're still standing around arguing about it. And there's a sense of everybody not wanting to like stir from place if there's not a need to do so, even though this is an emergency situation, allegedly. So when we cut back to the present, it takes a minute before we find out via a newscast that everybody like survived. There were, I don't know if they say no fatalities, but there were a lot fewer than there were in the original timeline. And there's also this sort of burgeoning conspiracy theory about why so many people were unexpectedly not where they should have been. And I really enjoyed that aspect of it. Taki, again, his memories fade surrounding their body swap, everything that happened, he doesn't actually remember the details of, but he has this inexplicable obsession with the comet and everything that 
surrounded that. So he reads like all of these articles about what went down and people being very suspicious of the mayor's connection to everything, which is wild. Um, And there's no explanation, of course, like nobody can, because why would there be? And I have to, I really wonder like if Mitsuya doesn't remember either what her friends think, because she was the one who was so insistent the comet's going to hit. We've got to get people out of here. And then the comet hits. They have saved lives. And then Mitsuya has no idea about why she said or did any of that. And her friends must be like, what the fuck, dude? And I guess if I were in their position and she's like part of this family that's part of a temple, I would think maybe she had a sort of like Cassandra-like vision of the future and it's the kind of thing that in the midst of it, you will remember it. But then once it passes, you don't. And people have to tell you about it because it doesn't get retained by your brain. I think that I would assume it was something like that, you know, like an Oracle at Delphi situation where it just once the the actual um, immediacy of the threat has passed, the need for the memory just dissipates. So... But yeah, I'm, I'm sure her friends are just like, holy shit. Like, you literally saved like 500 people from instant death. That's huge. And so then we go to the two of them living their lives in Tokyo. Oh, my God. I can't believe I almost I almost skipped the Twilight meeting. And I have so little time left, you guys. But they they are on the edge of this crater where the temple is. And the temple's like right in the center of it. And it's where, like, almost just where the comet hits again. But this was so beautiful um, because of the lighting, the magic hour thing. And they're able to sort of hear each other. And it becomes clear it's because of the thinning of the veil between them due to the time of day and their actual physical proximity to one another. So they can hear each other and they're heading toward one another. And at first they're just like, maybe I can only hear you. But then they pass each other and you see a snap of like a thread appear. And then for just like a few minutes, they can actually see each other. And he says, before we forget, I can write your name or I, we'll write each other's names on our hands. And he goes to write it. But when she looks later, it doesn't say his name. It says, I love you. And I can't tell if this is because he wrote, I love you instead of his name, like a fucking idiot. Or if fate changed it on him. If he wrote his name and fate was like, no, 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 it's not. We're not going to play that. It's not going to be easy and changed it because I would hate to think that that's possible. But I also would hate to think that he's that stupid that he was like, oh, yeah, let me just write this instead of anything helpful or relevant. <laughs> Look, I understand that saying I love you is romantic, but it's not practical. And I am certainly much more concerned with practicality in a fucking situation like this. Thank you very much. The romance is circumstantial. Get this shit fixed. So 
<laughs> Candace says she thinks it's fate. Florian says I think he is an idiot. <laughs> oh God. So, um, but yeah, I did. I did really love this, and I love like the luminosity of the scene when the light is behind them and it's that magic hour and then once they uh, it's like been too long and the sun has set they the the change in the whole atmosphere because the sun has properly gone down it is so much more static and less like luminous Again, and that really is a thing that's wild when you are standing around at that time of day. If you guys have like taken a walk or a hike, twilight, you have this feeling of all of the color being heightened. Everything around you feels more real. And then as soon as it's over, it's like the color gets leached out of everything around you and suddenly it's all gray. It's turning gray in front of your eyes and it's wild it's so weird to see how like dramatic the change is and i just thought that was a really nice like illustrative way of depicting the like momentary connection and then how it fades away like that you know i just i really liked that um so yeah then we jump to like i said the uh two of them living in tokyo not remembering anything, but feeling this like inexplicable longing and sadness all the time. And eventually they pass one another on the train and they see each other through the window. And I just love the expression on both of their faces because they, they, it's a completely mutual thing. The instant that they see each other, they are aware you're the one I've been looking for, but there's no reason they can't like there's, they don't get it. There's nothing behind it to really, when they finally run and get to the same staircase and find one another, neither of them feels comfortable going up to the other and being like, it's you, it's you, it's you. Oh my God. Because they don't, really have a reason to feel this way it's just this thing that's happening and it takes a while for them to get to the same place and it's like again they have each had to travel far enough away from the train station that the only way they have managed to find one another is because they are sensing each other and they finally wind up after like blocks it seems like in the same spot and I do really enjoy, too, that she has a pendant around her neck that's a star. And I feel like that is a reference to the comet. And these two begin to walk past each other like goddamn tool bags. Fucking this whole thing has happened. You have looked at each other, had this moment on the train. You clearly went blocks out of your way and they did, too. And then they're just about to walk away from each other. I was like, if I have to grab the two of you and shove you together and say, now kiss, I'm going to be very irritated thankfully he finally stops and turns around and says excuse me i'm sorry but haven't i met you before and she turns around and says finally i thought the same thing and when they look at each other they're both crying 
And it ends with her saying, may I ask you your name? And that is the end of the movie. And that's just such a good ending. It was so good. I got so teary-eyed, you guys, at the part where they see each other on the train. I was, like, pretty... I was I was pretty stoic throughout the rest of the movie. But then when I got to the point where they actually see each other, that was it. I just, like, that feeling and the expression on their face of just, like, oh, my God. I was just like, oh, God, I felt that. I felt that, like, more than once. And it's just impossible to ignore it. And it just got me right in the fucking feels. Um, so anyway, yeah, this, I just really enjoyed this. Thank you again, Candace, so much for commissioning this. It was really, really good. And I am going to not watch his other movies because you said not to, but, uh, I am definitely going to be impatient about it. So know that. And I'm really appreciate all of you guys for hanging out with me. Thank you, Florian and Kyle for being up in the chat. Um, and I hope that you enjoyed the coverage of it. I really hope so. So, all right, guys, I'm going to wrap. I'm over time. But thank you all again. Until next time. Toodaloo, motherfuckers. Spoiled Network Podcast. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.